0: Hello and welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party content for this episode was recorded Saturday April 24th 2021 and a good evening to everyone out there I'm Greg from Philly your host for this evening's podcast today we're talking with Jonathan Etheridge the Alliance Party's national chair and our topic is gun violence gun violence has been in the news far too much this year um It's likely that there's been a new one by the time you have heard this show from when we recorded it. We've seen 38 mass shootings so far across the United States in just this month alone. And it's not even done yet. We still have another week to go. The most prominent shooting this month occurred in Indianapolis on April 15th, where eight people died before the perpetrator eventually turned the gun on himself. Other mass shootings include 10 people killed in Boulder, Colorado, eight killed in Atlanta, six in Muskegee, Oklahoma, six in Indianapolis, six in Chicago, Evanston, Illinois. And there were shootings in little-known places like uh, Kankakee, Illinois, Yuba City, California, Yazoo City, Mississippi, McKee Rocks, Pennsylvania, and it goes on and on and on. The names of the dead include Jess Winder Singh, Carlos Moreno, Shamir Jones, Paul Andre Michels, and dozens, dozens more. And these are not even the only tragic shootings. There are also lesser known and smaller scale shootings that happen every day in most cities across this country. Accidental deaths, suicides, officer involved shootings and good old fashioned crime. And While there is no government database of shootings, it has been calculated by the gun violence archive that this year alone we've already seen over 13,000 deaths due to gun violence. Debates about guns and what to do about them have been raging for years. And as far as we can tell, all this debating hasn't had much effect. These debates were extremely intense in the days after the Sandy Hook murders. It was 26 people, 20 of whom were children. It brought tears to the president's eyes. It irritated promises, tearful and empathetic Congress saying they would do something. But eventually the tears dried up and it was largely back to business as usual. And meanwhile, people keep dying in the streets, dying in restaurants, dying in schools, dying in workplaces, dying in places of worship, movie theaters, shopping malls, just about anywhere you can think of has been touched by gun violence. So is there a place where we can all stop shouting at each other and stop with the tears and stop with the thoughts and prayers and come together to work on a common solution that we can actually get done? We believe that the Alliance Party is such a place. The Alliance party does take a position on gun violence, but without all the shouting. We do not seek to abolish guns, but rather find a way toward a solution that gives people on both sides of the issue something they can live with. Positions include reducing easy and immediate access to firearms, establishing a culture of gun safety, restricting bulk firearm purchases and the lethality of individual firearms, strengthening our mental health infrastructure and increasing reporting requirements creating red flag laws. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we have Jonathan Etheridge, the Alliance Party's national chair with us. He's with us this evening to discuss these positions and offer insight into the Alliance Party's common sense approach to reduce gun violence. Jonathan, welcome back to Alliance Party After Dark. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Greg. It's great to talk to you, but it's an unfortunate topic to uh, have to talk about.
0: Absolutely. Um, Let's start at the beginning. There is a long tradition of guns in America. It's tied to our history. In your view, why has it become so ingrained into our culture?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, for for many of us, you know, growing up around the country, guns were kind of a, a part of life. I mean, I was very actively involved with firearms uh, as a child, you know, being from a family of hunters. You know, I remember getting gun safety lessons as early as four. And I think I had my, my first shotgun when I was eight. Um, so it was just, they were there, they were prevalent and they were around. It was a, it was a way of life. So from a cultural perspective, I think, you know, that's, that's kind of how it's embedded is, is that, that idea of the frontiersmen in America as this, this open land of promise. And you need these things to provide for your family and protect yourself from, from threats. But I think also culturally, you know, the, the Second Amendment has played a big role um, and, and it's its history before us now. And it's it's unfortunately it's been misinterpreted in many different ways. Um, on, on some of the rulings like Miller and Heller, um, to where you know th- there's there's rumor people are taking this all guns or no guns solution. I think that's part of the problem too. It's one more tactic. That the that, that the status quo is using to divide us. It's telling us, "Hey, you you only have one solution. Either we're going to come and take your guns, which you know is red meat to that that base that views them as part of their culture, part of their identity, um, or you know we're we're not going to do anything about it." Which of course is is an unacceptable solution to those who who want to actually address the issue of gun violence, um, and so. You know, really for the alliance party we're saying any sincere effort to make progress on addressing this plague, or this public health crisis has to manage the risk of means motives and opportunity for gun violence and so. you know, we recognize that while the vast majority of gun owners are responsible law abiding and use their guns safely, it is in the best interest of all Americans to standardize gun laws improve the safety of gun use and make clear and readily um, verifiable distinctions between those who should not have guns and those that can within the guarantees of the second amendment to, to the right of an individual to bear arms.
0: We're gonna talk about some of the solutions, the specific proposals that the Alliance party has put forth, but before we do that, I kinda of wanna get your get your take on the Alliance party's story around this. What, what drove us to take a position on gun violence and what were our objectives going into it as a party, you know? uh, Why did we feel so strongly that this needed to be an issue? What are we hoping to do in terms of the larger political conversation here?
1: Yeah, so I mean, you know, the Alliance Party wants to offer reasonable evidence-based solutions to the problems that are, are affecting Americans in every community, every corner, and every household in the country, whether it's food security and job security, whether it's, uh, you know, equal access to to opportunity in the economy or you know, protection of civil rights and and also gun violence. I mean, gun violence is a public health crisis, the same as the COVID, the same as obese, childhood obesity, the same as anything. And so I think it would be irresponsible for us to ignore it um, just because it's a difficult topic. That's, that's kind of loaded politically and culturally. And so we said, you know, we need to offer a solution. That's, that's more than just, you know, no guns or, or any, a gun, any type of gun anywhere, anytime you want it. And so we set out to, to do the research and to say, okay, what, Based on all the analyses that have been done and the meta-analysis that have been done of those studies, what are the things that have been statistically proven to have a positive effect on outcomes around gun violence? And that's things like, like you mentioned, you know, reducing easy and immediate access to firearms, um, promoting gun safety, um, you know, looking at how we can strengthen our mental health infrastructure, and and you know, prevent uh, you know, people who, who should not have access to guns from getting them. And I think one, one thing that I do want to point out as well is our concern is not just on the mass shootings, they get a lot of attention, but I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, if you look at firearm deaths, um, six out of every 10 of those deaths are firearm suicide and more than three out of the 10 are firearm homicides. And so we're also concerned about things that can prevent guns from getting in the hands of those who, who represent an imminent risk of harm to themselves or others. And that's one of the things that we've done differently as well, is to try to focus on the root causes, not be limited to the hardware or the device itself.
0: That's a great point. And let's get into some of these solutions. Um, There are five that are are prominently positioned in the Alliance Party's platform. I'd like to read them off and get a little more detail from you about what that might mean in in implementation. And uh, then we'll talk a little bit about some alternatives we didn't decide to go with. Um, So the first, and I think the the thing that has been part of the heart of the controversy over gun control legislation since there is a thing called gun control legislation, reduce easy and immediate access to firearms. What might that mean from an actual legislative perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, from a legislative perspective, we have a pretty good start with the um, national instant criminal background check system that was created by the Brady Act in 1993. Um, And and all the statistics since then, all the studies have shown that the single most effective risk mitigation strategy to preventing gun violence and mass shootings is to ensure that those who commit acts of violence cannot get access to guns. And so what what we want to do is say, okay, take the framework that's there and close the loopholes within the existing system that are preventing, you know, immediate and real time reporting of those who have had adjudications against them for for mental health, for family violence, um, or qualify for an emergency risk protective order or, or a firearm um, possession uh, ban based on, on you know, being identified by a magistrate as, as in the risk of imminent harm to self or others. And so that's really where our concern there is say we have a good start, but one background checks are not universal for all firearm sales or transfers. And that's one of the things that, that we want to seriously look at You know, I mean, the FBI themselves have said that, you know, nearly 40% of all gun sales are made by private sellers who are currently exempt under the Brady Act um, to run background checks on those who are buying guns. And even a a survey done by the Department of Correction found that only 12% of inmates who used a gun in a crime acquired it from a retail store or pawn shop. They, They were given it or they stole it. And so that's why we're saying, you know, we would take the existing mechanism that's there to use the background check system, but extend it to require background checks for all firearms sales and transfers, even between family members um, and and even temporary transfers for hunting and sporting purposes. Um, Some of the other things that we would do too is, is the background check system is only as good as the data that's in the system. And so we need to, strengthen the requirements for state and federal agencies to share information that's reliable and in a timely manner with the national background check system as well as all state and other federal databases immediately after a determination of a risk or a a ban on firearms purchase or possessions made so that you know, if, if law enforcement or a mental health professional is is dealing with an individual, they have real time access to the data, rather than you know selling someone a gun that that they shouldn't have. But as far as the dealer knows, even if they do run a background check, that person's still legally able to to purchase or possess that gun. Absolutely. And then, and then you know, some of the things we do is is or reporting guns um, is is a big deal. You know, the FBI estimates that. Almost 380,000 to 400,000 guns are are stolen every year. The bulk of those from from homes, right? They're unsecured and they're and they're the, the ease of access to them. And so, and one of the things that we would do is extend the mandatory reporting requirements of lost or stolen guns to owners, not just limit it to firearms dealers. Uh, and then I think one other key provision that we looked at as well is is more around the mental health aspect of it and, and the is is the waiting period right the the seven day waiting period for all firearms purchases and transfers um which is just to avoid those those crimes of passion and and those those disassociative breaks that those with mental health have gone from you know being identified as a risk to to unfortunately acting upon that that impulse um, this would this would prevent a lot of that based on all the meta analysis that we've seen uh, done by the Rand Corporation which today as far as I know, is the the single largest meta analysis of gun violence research that's been conducted.
0: Let's also talk about the restriction of the lethality of individual firearms that's a, a key aspect of our platform, what might that mean. In terms of implementation.
1: yeah so what we looked at was rather than um wading wait, into the the legal um readings of of you know what's the legality of banning certain types of weapons and there's a lot of focus in the the common discourse around you know banning assault rifles and and that type of thing and and we did not want to focus on the device uh exclusively but there are some things where the argument falls apart when you say well i use it for hunting or I use it for sport You know, where there are things that you can do modifications that you can make to a firearm, such as, you know, um, putting a bump stock in or something that allows you to increase the rate of fire to to where it uh, closely resembles an automatic weapon or large capacity magazines, you know, most of these mass shootings, especially the lethality of the shooting when you get 10 or more people injured or killed uh, is almost always because of of the use of large capacity magazines and so that's where we're saying, you know, there are reasonable restrictions where you say, yes, you can have that gun, but there are modifications, accessories, or attachments that, that have no basis in us on a hunting or sporting purpose. They're clearly to, uh, increase the lethality of the weapon and then therefore go against the, the, the reasoning behind, you know, needing that needing that gun. So that that's, that's kind of what we would do there.
0: One thing that more and more people are coming around to is that this isn't just a gun violence crisis, but it's part of a larger mental health crisis. Talk about what specifically the Alliance Party is looking to do in terms of strengthening our mental health infrastructure.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a great. That's a great question. You know, a lot of the times the, there's all people who are really at the front line. Um, you know, children and young adults, for example, by school staff who can be identified as a risk of injury or harm to themselves or others. And um, Texas had started uh, a great program in 2018, a telemedicine wellness intervention and referral program, where if a staff member had reason to feel like the student was potentially a risk of harm, um, they could refer them to a psychiatrist. They'd have a teleconferencing device set up at the school that would allow them to do an immediate video assessment with the subject and then make appropriate referral to mental health care or individual or family counseling or to an inpatient facility as, as deemed appropriate. Um, and, you know, when Texas launched that program in, in 2018, um, in the first year, 400 students were referred by educators to the program. And 50% of those, based on that screening, were subsequently sent to a trained psychologist to deal with things like anxiety, depression, loneliness, isolation. Um, you know, to to get further psychiatric assessments and and even sometimes immediate hospitalizations um, because they were indicators that they were planning violent incidents like shootings. So. You know, from there, it's, it's about risk identification and the ability to get an immediate professional assessment of the mindset of the individual and whether some actions need to be taken. The other thing um, is the the United States Secret Service and the US Department of Education developed a system called a behavioral threat assessment model that helps them basically identify and understand and respond to signs of distress mental illness or just personal crisis in an individual and so you know one of the things that we've said is if you are a teacher a mental health professional a human resources leader at an employer um, you know who has the ability to observe these behaviors then we need to give you training and tools to help you identify potential threats and also what those proper interventions are to to you know, prevent those risks from spreading out either amongst themselves their students or their employees and so one of the recommendations we had say let's take this great tool that already exists let's make it free to all educators key professionals and human resources leaders um, and not only provide it for free but make it a part of their continuing education units so that they stay up to to speed on that on that so it's really trying to identify the risks and the, the motives behind Know, the potential gun violence, whether it's suicide or or it's it's firearm violence against another, and try to to quickly intervene and and put some measures in place to stop an individual from taking action when they're in this this crisis state.
0: I think some of the red flag laws you talked about earlier might also play a role there.
1: Yeah, abs- yeah, absolutely. Um, we're we're big proponents of a of a national red flag law, um, uh, and I. I, I don't- I don't know if a lot of people know how they work because, you know, I, I see a lot of people saying, well, you know, federal law already prohibits anyone who's convicted of a, of a felony violence charge or who's subject to a domestic violence protective order from purchasing a firearm, but there's no federal mechanism in place to confiscate firearms that are already owned by the subject of those orders. And so, you know, one of the things that we did was um, looked at all the states that had passed red flag laws to date in any where state legislatures were considering proposed measures um, and looked at okay what's what's working unfortunately they're fairly new with the exception of a couple states that did that put theirs in in the 90s most of them haven't been in place longer than like 2018 so there's a limited amount of research on the efficacy of the programs Um, but I think there's still some very good things in there that will allow us to uh seek legal recourse to to get guns out of the possession of people who you know have have been found to be an imminent risk of harm or self to others and you know really what that looks you know the first thing you have to consider with an executive balance protective order red flag law is who may petition the court to file an order against the person to have their firearms confiscated you know it can't just be anyone right so you got to figure out okay who who are the people that should do that and we've we've gone through that level detail and say okay what works what's what are the most popular proposals the ones that have been the most successful what are they looking at it's immediate family members you know um it's someone that you live with your your roommates um or or someone who has formerly resided with the respondent uh of of the order within six months of filing um because In almost all cases of gun violence, especially mass shootings, the FBI has said someone knew, right? They said something, there was some marker of their intent to commit the act, but the person said, well, they're not capable of it. They'd never do that. They were just blowing off steam. And so what this is saying is we have a mechanism for those people to safely try to help this individual and intervene before, you know, they're, they're assumption that the person is not capable of doing that is proven false uh, we would also let employers do it or co-workers you know a lot of gun violence is also you know particularly the shootings at the fedex center are, are linked to current or former places of employment and then as we said before you know school staff at a high school or college or, or mental health workers who have directly interacted with with a potential respondent of, of an, an evpo um, could submit it and then to be fair you know we would then it has to go before a magistrate right so then the judge will have to assess the case for the for the petition based on probable cause imminent risk or any documented evidence that gives rise to a reasonable belief that this individual has a propensity for violence or emotionally unstable contact you know or conduct have they have they committed recent acts of violence or threatened acts of violence, or or animal cruelty is, is a big indicator of, of some psychiatric conditions, you know? Have they acted recklessly in displaying or using a gun? Um, have they, you know, th- verbally threatened someone uh, in in a domestic violence dispute or or you know a, a school incident? And so, if the judge finds that the that the evidence is is there. Then we would say, okay, they can issue an initial order for confiscation most states it's it's anywhere from seven to 14 days. Um, So law enforcement serves that and confiscates any firearms that are in the individuals possession, as well as of course flags them in the database not to be able to purchase firearms or receive transfers of firearms. Um, And they're guaranteed a hearing before a judge within that within that time window, and then the judge can decide whether or not to deny the request to place this, this individual under an ebpo or return the rights to possession to the respondent and one of the things that you know we believe is is you're innocent until proven guilty and so this is not a permanent ban we would we would place limits on how long an ebpo could be applicable with the subject given an opportunity to come back for a follow-up hearing um, and and you know, see if, if enough evidence is still there to extend or or revoke the, the, the ban on the possession and purchase of firearms.
0: A lot of the criticism of the red flag laws is that they might be abused as a backdoor way to seize guns. Um, I think having some due process safeguards against that kind of thing is going to be an important step toward making that solution appealing, you know, kind of across the aisle, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, and and like the oldest, so Connecticut had the oldest red flag law in the book, um, and Duke University did a study uh, in 2013 of their law. So it's first 14 years, or from 99 to 2013. There was, across the entire state of Connecticut in 14 years, only 762 risk warrants served 90% 90% of those were originated by law enforcement. So it wasn't like family reporting something. It was law enforcement saw a behavior or responded to a call and saw the potential need to, to issue a risk warrant. And, and of the people who were served, they took an average, an average of seven firearms per person served. <laughs> um, so oh my God, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, you know, so even in the cases where you have the the oldest and most comprehensive law on the on the books in the, at a state level, um, there, there's no evidence that, that these numbers suggest abuse. Um, and it was a minority where, you know, it could have been a scenario of, of revenge or spite. It was more often than not, it was, you know, a trained professional saw a need to potentially, uh, you know, intervene in this manner.
0: Let's talk a little bit about a culture of gun safety and promoting that in general in America. What are some behaviors you think would really move the needle in reducing gun violence?
1: Well, I I think, you know, one of the things that we have to be careful about is just how many homes have unsecured guns in them. I mean, there are, you know, 4.6 million children in America that are, based on the CDC's research, that are, that are living in a home where there is at least one unsecured and loaded firearm. 350 children a year accidentally shoot themselves or someone else. And if you look at those who have access to firearms, even in their, their own home or that of a family member or a friend, I mean those firearms those firearms taken out of a home that are unsecured that are loaded comprise the majority of, of firearm suicides amongst children as well as incidents of gun violence amongst students at schools so there is a clear link between having guns laying around with no protective measures in place uh, and and then the the ability to in a moment of crisis or in a moment of impulse have access to to a firearm and and the ability to do something harmful with it Um, so you know one of the things that we want to do is is really require safe and secure gun storage and and say that you know criminal liability not required but should be an option for prosecutors in cases where a firearm owner fails to secure a firearm and it's used in a crime Um, we'd also want to Mandate graduated training and licensing programs with recurring education for renewal of firearms uh, ownership permits, concealed carry, and kind of have that graduated licensing schema, which, which the the Supreme Court has upheld um, multiple times as, as reasonable, uh, even under the Heller decision. Um, and so, so we think that's. I mean, that should be at least as stringent as getting a driver's license, right? I mean, it's just, we have people who, who can't drive a car but they can buy a gun the same day and and unfortunately commit an act of violence with it or self-harm. And then we'd also like to repeal immunity laws for the gun industry. Really, they should be as accountable as any industry to provide oversight in how they market and sell firearms and ammunition.
0: Are there particular practices you think would be um, sort of caught up in that push? I'm not terribly familiar with the the impact of, say, removing those immunity laws, what do you think that might do in terms of the meta?
1: It's tough, and there hasn't been a lot of good study of it because the laws are still on the books. Um, but the it's, so it's saying that you know almost every American industry and product carries civil liability if you are found to irresponsibly manufacture or sell the product, but the gun industry doesn't. It's one of the, it's. I don't I can't say it's the only but it's one of the only ones that are exempt from that requirement, which means that for families of gun violence, there is no avenue. For justice, you know in in circumstances where legislators have been unw- unwilling to enact regulations to improve safety. dangerous products and careless industry practices have have been in effect and the gun industry is an example of that you know it has unprecedented immunity same thing with dealers right there's no there's no way to go after dealers currently who who voluntarily or not voluntarily but don't require the mandated background checks right i mean if they if someone comes to them and says hey you were supposed to do a background check and you didn't you sold them the gun anyways and then they killed people there's no way to to get civil um, recourse for that so you know this is really it's it's about saying the gun industry as, as one player in the spectrum of, of firearms, you know, the, the, the prevalence of firearms in our society has, um, has a responsibility to play a role as well to try to ensure that there are ways to hold them accountable to these measures that we're putting in place to say, you know, you gotta do background checks. You've, you've got to, to not make guns so easily modifiable with things that, imp- that increase their lethality. Um, and you know, I think one of the things that we've looked at as well is restricting bulk purchases of firearms. So looking at saying, you know, there are limits to how many firearms you can buy at one time through licensed dealer and private sellers. And that would require the gun industry to help, help report on that and track those firearm purchases um, so that we can, we can see if people are in violation of those types of, of regulation
0: let's talk about some solutions that we didn't decide to go with um you know one that comes to mind is we're not calling for a a national database of gun violence what else did we look at and go you know what this it might be good it might not be good but this shouldn't be a priority for us for one reason or another
1: well I, i think the big one was um not just trying to ban entire categories of firearms that's 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 the talking point solution and that's what we want to avoid you know that all or nothing i think you know what we usually call or solutions right you have to do this there's there's no middle ground and you know there there are legitimate self-defense reasons to to have um ars and and certain weapon platforms so we've said is well rather than ban that just ban the high capacity magazine so you limit its ability to be used in an incident of mass violence, not in self-defense. I think that was that was really one of the big the big ones that we uh, that we looked at and did the research on and, and just felt like that could go against the the Heller decision and what they had ruled about, you know, essentially the the concept of common use weapons. Right. So in the, Miller, in the Miller and Heller, the court upheld both the individual right to bear arms versus the collective right uh, based on how it defined a militia. And so one of the things too is it said, well, common weapons at the time, those are weapons that are commonly used in a, in a military and law enforcement capacity, therefore they could qualify for that. So we didn't want to wade into that territory, quite honestly, from a legal perspective because we think there's there's basis in an existing precedent in law based on Supreme Court decisions. Um, but we also just didn't feel like that's that's an adequate solution. Just saying no assault rifles isn't going to solve the problem. Instead, you can say, what can we reasonably regulate on assault rifles that would meaningfully move the needle and affect the outcomes that we want, but not run afoul of the individual right to to possess that firearm?
0: Now, if people are passionate about the issues of gun violence, how can they get more involved in the Alliance Party and what we're doing to help solve that problem?
1: I mean, the big thing is, is to, to support us to, to run for office. I mean, if you really want to make meaningful reform, there are many voices out there that are advocating for exactly this type of policy. Um, and, and so our big thing now is we're encouraging people to run. You know, we, we do not want to continue to, to put the the politician class or the career politicians in office because they've they've had their chance. They've created the status quo. They've they've buried their heads in the sand and they haven't attempted to tackle this issue. And so, we need to put a, a new breed of public servant in office um, that's that's going to want to take these issues head on, uh, fearlessly try to address them, um, and and do it for the right reason in the right way so I would encourage people to get involved with the Alliance Party, to to run themselves, support a candidate, to donate, to volunteer for a campaign. You know, all these things are necessary in order to affect the change that we want and, and really own our own political future.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us, Jonathan. We've been talking with Jonathan Etheridge, the National Party Chair for the Alliance Party. And uh, this is a great conversation. I really appreciate the detail that you've brought into this. And uh, I hope everyone out there took something away from both the issue in general and what the Alliance Party is doing to move the issue forward and bring some kind of solution, some kind of relief to help lower the epidemic of gun violence in America. So thank you once again. Thank you, Greg. And thank you out there for tuning into the Alliance Party after dark. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any of our episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party perspective. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. If you've enjoyed listening and you'd like to get more involved in the Alliance Party, please check out the brand new, recently redesigned website, www.theallianceparty.com. As we expand the party, we do need more involvement from you. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Jonathan mentioned we're looking for candidates. Donations and volunteers are also always welcome. If you'd like to contact us here at the Alliance Party After Dark, drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com and also check out our Twitter page at Alliance On Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. I'm Greg from Philly, your host for this evening's edition of Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, including my fearless producer, Dan, have a wonderful evening and a great week ahead. We hope you drop in for the next show. Be safe, be aware, please take care of yourself and those around you.